I have two words for you that you might like to hear. Flash sale. Transition AI New York, our one-day conference and workshop on AI and the energy system, is coming up on October 19th in Manhattan. And from now until October 9th, you can get 30% off your ticket. Follow the link at the top of the show notes, and our discount code will be automatically applied to your ticket. And if you want to do it manually, it's FLASH30. And when you get to Transition AI, you're going to network with experts from Microsoft, GE Digital, AES, National Grid, Oracle, and a bunch of founders, executives, and academics who are building AI strategies right now. The flash sale ends on October 9th. Don't miss out. And if you hear this after October 9th, you can still use the promo code PSPODS10 at checkout to get your 10% discount. And come dive deep with us into AI and the energy transition at Transition AI New York. See you October 19th. From the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Recently, I woke Canary Media editor Jeff St. John up early on West Coast time to talk with me after taking the stage in Berkeley at the Canary Live event. He suggested the time, not me, by the way. I was riding a high from the event last night, and I guess I just decided that I should share what we talked about uh, as quickly as possible to kind of capture that enthusiasm. That enthusiasm on the panel was also mixed with a little apprehension because the subject was decarbonizing the largest subnational economy in the world, California. California is really at a crucial crossroads right now. The state has done a lot of work as the longtime national leader in building clean energy. Nearly 1.8 million rooftop solar installations, a 10x increase in batteries to more than 5 gigawatts, and one in four cars sold in the state are now electric. And California is the world's fifth largest economy. What it does has big impacts nationally and globally, but there's, there's some serious problems here. And the list of problems is long. Controversial policy changes, acute extreme weather threats, and backlogs. Lots and lots of backlogs. Like a lot of other places in the country, its transmission grid is kind of oversubscribed. There are a lot of big clean energy projects waiting in the pipeline trying to get interconnected, and it's really hard to build new transmission to to put them online. But, you know, the local grid is a problem, too. In the last year, we've seen reports of interconnection delays for more than 100 new residential developments, municipal buildings, warehouses, other sites that need grid power. That's simply new buildings that can't get the grid service they need. And that's a problem because, you know, California is going to add a lot more electricity demand with all the electric vehicles that are coming onto the roads and the goals they've set and all the electric uh, electrification of building heating that's really important to get the natural gas out of the uh, building sector and it's really hard to see how california's utilities and and policymakers and regulators kind of un unknot this kind of series of, of roadblocks to getting stuff online it's uh, we're already seeing it in the big heavy duty vehicle electrification realm where we've got a advanced clean trucks rule that's going to require all 1.8 million commercial trucks in the state to go emissions free over the next two decades and about i think 38,000 trucks that serve ports got to get cleaned by 2035 you can't buy new ice port trucks now but a lot of the freight depots out there are reporting that it's taken one two or more years to get the grid interconnection service they need to actually do all the charging that they're going to need for all those trucks so we've got a lot of how do we get there from here problems that we need to solve when you pull back and consider all those challenges how addressable do you think they are i would say the vibe was optimistic but uh, a little bit confrontational you can take away a pretty clear understanding of how hard it is to be in this position of taking these really aggressive clean energy electrification and climate change mandates and then trying to execute them I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. This week, California's messy energy transition. We are going to play Jeff St. John's panel from Canary Live. He took the stage to talk about the acute challenges in California's efforts to speed up decarbonization. It's trying things no other state has tried. Will it actually pull them off? Faced with the surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. 
If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a Frontier Forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions from voices across the political spectrum. Listen at latitudemedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. All right, so let's get into Jeff St. John's panel discussion now with some major players in California's clean energy industry. Uh, Jeff St. John is Canary Media's news director, and he's up on stage interviewing California State Senator Josh Becker. Senator Becker has been a key player in a lot of the bills that you'll be hearing about, including um, grid expansion, interconnection, solar along highways. And then you're going to hear from Bernadette Del Chiaro. Bernadette is executive director of the California Solar and Storage Association, the state's largest and oldest clean energy business organization. And finally, Arthur Bart Williams. Arthur is executive director of the Bay Area affiliate of Grid Alternatives, the country's largest solar nonprofit and a major actor in enabling solar efficiency, workforce training, and economic and environmental justice. So I'm going to hand it over to Jeff. Let me ask each of you, if you don't mind, and if I may start with you, uh, Arthur, um, looking at where California is right now and where the state needs to go, what are you focused on? How, where do you see uh, the biggest challenges to be addressed, and how are you working on them, and how would you propose the state get to work solving them? Sure. So, um, hello, everybody. It's good to be here. Um, I'm just going to say it up front. I'm nervous, but uh, <laughs> we'll get through this. Um, but really, it's an honor to be here. So um, our focus as Grid Alternatives is it's equity and environmental justice. Our mission is to build community-powered solutions that advance economic and environmental justice through renewable energy. So there, there's a lot in there, but advancing economic and environmental justice, community-led, so it really is community-based, and um, obviously renewable energy is our is our vehicle. So in terms of... You know, I want to start with like what's working, I guess. There's a, there's a program, um, Transformative Climate Communities, is a state-run um, program. It's administered by the Strategic Growth Council, which is a cabinet-level um, agency. And I've just been thoroughly impressed with that program. The framework of it really addresses what we do, and it aligns with our mission. Um, and as a quick example, um, there's a project that's kicking off right now in Richmond, called Richmond Rising that's funded by the, uh, it's known as a TCC. And it was a $35 million grant that was awarded to the community. It's a coalition, includes the city of Richmond, Trust for Public Land, Urban Tilth, uh, Rich City Rides, and Grid Alternatives are the key partners. But the whole process was community-driven. It really, the structure forces these organizations to work together. Fortunately, these organizations are already working together, and this just accelerated. But from the planning process, the, um, the ideas are come, come, come from the community, the engagement is from the community, So this is, and the, the expertise is in the community. So it goes with their priorities, their values. So you've got um, jobs and training, along with projects that are kind of approach it in a holistic way. So you've got transit access and mobility, You've got um, uh, uh, renewable energy, solar, uh, um, and EVs. Um, we've got water efficiency with um, uh, laundry to, to landscape and um, you know, uh, other efficiency measures. They've got uh, green, green, urban greening, planting trees to cool the streets, transit access, bikes. And so it's really holistic, even to you know, health and well-being. Um, they're planting trees and then the fruits the food is part of you've given away so it's just been really awesome to kind of see this come together and by the way there are 26 other communities in california that are doing this so it really is a great model that's being taken um in, in, in other parts of the country so that's been working and it fits with what we do and it's just been nice to kind of plug into that 
Thank you for that. It's a really interesting program, y'all. Um, and what, one thing I was struck by in, in doing a little reporting on it is the extent to which the program really focuses on getting communities involved and giving the community organizations and members the agency to mm -hmm. decide uh, and structure what they're doing from the bottom up. Go, coming from the top down, things might be a little bit more challenging. Um, uh, Bernadette, I don't know if you can uh, help us understand what CALSA has been working on and what it's concerned about and how the distributed solar and storage industry is uh, looking at the policy decisions being made uh, at the state agency level right now and, and what you all think of them. <laughs> okay, happy to. Can, here's the mic better there. Um, so first of all, I just want to thank Jeff and everybody at Canary. You guys are a tremendous resource, um, not just for the clean tech industry, but for mainstream media throughout California and even, you know, the, the, the energy nerd public at least, but you are a tremendous resource. So thank you. And thank you for having this event and being able to be in person again is uh, just a huge, huge thrill for me. Um, I also want to give additional extra props to Senator Becker. I think it's appropriate. You are to the far left from the audience point of view, by the way. <laughs> thank you for that. You feel better. Um, just un, un, unquestionably one of our biggest champions and deep thinkers on, on energy. So it's a, a real asset and credible honor to share a stage with you, Senator. Um, so CALSA, the California Solar and Storage Association, we are focused on the distributed side of the solar and energy storage market. Um, I wanna take it up high level. I've been thinking about this a lot. California um, sets goals really well. Uh, and our late, lately, we've been really focused on electrification. So in order to meet our goals, California uh, needs to sell a million electric cars every year. We need to sell pretty much a million heat pumps every year. Um, we have invested billions of dollars in driving electrification. And as a result of that, we anticipate our electricity load is going to at least double just from our electrification initiatives in the next couple of years. And that's not counting any kind of impact climate change has on electricity consumption. In order to meet that, California needs to add six gigawatts of renewable energy and energy storage every year, six gigawatts. And that needed to start yesterday and be sustained for the next 10 to 15 years if we're gonna keep the lights on and meet our clean energy goals. We have never built that much renewable energy in California. And we are about half that right now in averaging, and that's a good year. Um, can we do it? Absolutely, but all of our different markets need to be running at full steam. And the distributed market this is a really, I think, important fact for everybody to understand. It is California's largest renewable energy market. The distributed solar rooftop solar market is the largest renewable energy market in California. And the largest battery in the world is not at Moss Landing, it's actually hanging on garage walls all around the state. The potential for our communities and everybody individually, as well as our municipalities and our businesses to participate in the clean energy revolution is tremendous. It is not a nice little niche sideshow. It's not the only thing, we need all of it. We need community solar, we need utility scale, we need electrification, but we absolutely can't stumble on this important solar resource that can be brought to scale and at speed. And right now, California just announced, you know, just put in place major changes to the number one driver to that market, which was net metering. And we just got data today that shows that sales are down 80% across the state. And that's during our summer months. These are, these are supposed to be the months that get us through the rest of the year. So how do we meet our electrification goals how do we decarbonize California if the largest renewable energy market just got gutted 80%? And we can talk more about where we go from there, but you know, California needs to get back to the place of investing in innovation, encouraging development, and removing barriers. And unfortunately, even for the other renewable energy markets, but especially with distributed, we have kind of turned all of that in on its head, and we need to get back to that place. 
Thanks, Bernadette. I know that net metering is a, a controversial and, and much fought over topic. Um, and Senator Becker, I uh, know that your uh, slate of bills that are coming out of this year's legislative session uh, tackle both the distributed and kind of centrally procured side of things. I, I wonder if you could help us understand how you see the challenge of kind of hitting these very ambitious goals, how you see, you know, state mandates driving that, how you see application essentially of those mandates by state agencies driving that, and, and, and where you see the alignment of that policy uh, coming in and, you know, working with the, the way that the markets work and uh, the way that the private sector invests and, and where you think it needs improvement. And, and where are the key gaps and how are you trying to address them? Yes, well, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Uh, first of all, I'll just say it's great to be here. Thanks to Canary uh, for pulling this together. And this feels like one of probably hundreds of clean energy uh, meetups that I've been to over the years in my role, either as a clean energy investor, um, as a entrepreneur, as co-founder of Clean Tech for Obama with some folks here. And um, going way back when to 1992, when I helped EPA do the first Clean Air Marketplace conference um, at that time. So it's fun to see many people here I've known for a long time and, and you know, looking forward to meeting new people uh, as well. And, you know, the great news, as you said, like there's lots of good news in California. And I'd say after a few years of really probably not doing a lot of super ambitious legislation. Uh, many people felt Mayor Creesman from Environment California said last year was the most impactful year for climate legislation in California history. And then today, this year was a very big uh, year as well from a variety of standpoints, everything from corporate disclosure, scope one, scope two, scope three, the um, corporate risk, uh, climate risk disclosure that the SEC should have done 10 years ago. Um, to kind of the nuts and bolts and some of the stuff that I, I wanna talk about in answer to, to your question. But the big picture is still that, um, you know, for all the good things we've done, uh, we're reducing emissions about 1% a year. And even to hit our own 2030 goals, we gotta be reducing emissions four to 5% a year. So there's a lot we have to do and a lot we have to get right. And I'll talk a lot uh, today about distribution and transmission bottlenecks, because I think that's um, what you, uh, one of the things that you alluded to in your question. Um, um, but other things we have to fix, like you know the stats that we just heard from Bernadette about um, the destruction of, um, uh, you know, to be not too dramatic, but the, I mean, really the 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 body blow to our rooftop solar business from Net Energy Meeting from Nem Three. So we got a lot of work to do uh, this year. Can we wonk out here? I think it's a wonky group, right? I, I, some people that I know here. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, a lot of this is transmission and distribution upgrades. And how do we actually connect things to the grid and make sure the grid is gonna be able to uh, onboard all of that we need. So like last year, I had a bill that had the, CU, the CEC and the PUC working more closely with CAISO on coordination on transmission. And this year, the CAISO approved a $7.5 billion of transmission projects, about 45 different transmission projects. And that was exactly what we wanted to do, right? That was the big step forward to say, okay, um, we have to actually do planning for all this we're gonna need. Uh, but the question is, again, how do we, uh, how do we continue to fix the bottlenecks, especially locally? So in my district, it takes about 70 weeks, which is hard to believe, like seven, no, seven zero, 70 weeks to get things connected to get new charging infrastructure, for example, uh, connected to the grid. Uh, we all know about the hospitals and buildings or just people's home energy upgrades, right? That they can't uh, get connected to the grid. And hopefully new technology that was talked about earlier is gonna help us um, you know, remove the necessity of some panel upgrades. But the bottom line is we have to do a much better job. So I had to build this year, after three years of trying, this kind of finally became a crisis. I think there was eight bills in the legislature and sort of my bill is the one that moved forward, bringing together the workforce development piece, the accountability for our utilities, actually standards and accountability for them, and then some interim rate making so we can actually fund in a super targeted way with lots of guardrails, all that we need to do to fill this massive uh, backlog of uh, things that we have to connect to the grid. So that's really what we've got to do. Like this year was like a super um, nuts, uh, nuts and bolts kind of meat and potato 
a year in a lot of those ways. Um, but as you said, with the EV fleet growth that we've seen and the medium and heavy duty trucks, like literally after in January this year, fleets of a certain size can only buy zero emission vehicles. Well, how are we gonna get the charging infrastructure uh, online to do that. So I had another bill this year, 420, that's all about basically treating these high capacity uh, distribution lines uh, and speeding them up, basically. We're moving about two and a half years of process that they would have had to go through and um, and speeding them up and treating them like other smaller distribution lines. And that bill's on the governor's uh, desk today. So we have to make sure the governor signs all these bills. That's 410 and 420, if you're tracking at home, and 619 from my colleague, uh, Steve Padilla, on some of these larger transmission lines. Uh, as well. So, um, you know, it's great to set the goals as you talked about, but we got to figure out at the end of the day, how are we actually going to get there uh, from an infrastructure standpoint um, and then focus on all the other areas of carbon emissions that I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, or we may talk about today, but we, you know, we have bills in agriculture, we have bills in, in cement and building materials and hard to decarbonize sectors. And uh, the great news is there's technology across the board in those areas, but we as policymakers, we have to set uh, the policy conditions to let those entrepreneurs thrive. And that's what we're trying to do. Thank you. I, I don't know if it's a good idea, but I figured we should go ahead and, and talk about net metering and distributed solar right off the bat, because it, it was enormously controversial. Um, and I, I just want to frame up the, the argument I, of, of folks who uh, supported the kind of rollback of the value of the energy that's exported from, from rooftop solar. And, and I think the argument goes like this. Um, uh, we don't need that solar when it's being generated. We need it later in the day. Um, we should structure a policy of, uh, framework and an incentive that uh, rewards that. What do you think might be the best way First of all, do you agree with that premise? And if you do, what is the best or perhaps a better way to structure uh, that incentive than what uh, came out of the California Public Utilities Commission? And feel free to jump in as you, as you all choose. Want me to start? I, I, I think you'd better. Okay, I don't know who came up with these arguments, but they are completely detached from reality. California needs 180 gigawatts more of renewable energy in the next 10 to 15 years. That's additional. We've only built 50. We need 180 gigawatts of renewable energy and energy storage capacity. And that works out to that six gigawatt number a year. We're behind schedule, we're behind pace. If anybody is geeks out, look at CalISO's energy supply and demand on a daily basis, any, t any, summer, any summer day, and you will see we are heavily dependent on natural gas still in the middle of the day at 12 o'clock in the afternoon when the sun is shining brightest. It is absolute false to say we don't need more solar energy. It is also true, and we need to be able to hold two concepts in our head at once, that we need more batteries. But guess what charges up the batteries? Solar. So we need more solar and we need more batteries. Making solar and batteries more expensive as a combined package for consumers is not a way to grow a market. California slashed the value of solar 80% and made it effective effect, you know, essentially immediately and we are now seeing an 80% drop in sales. It is a direct correlation. We said this would happen, and it happened, and we're reeling from it. Of course, we're trying to sell batteries. Battery attachment rate last year was maybe 12%, so 12% of consumers going solar added a battery. We are hoping those numbers will tick up, but to attach a battery to a market that is 80% shrunk is not progress. So we should have changed the way in which we, sh if we're gonna slash the value of solar, which I think that is something we could debate, and I would argue solar is more valuable as we try to, to sprint to the finish line to stop climate change, it is more valuable today than it was yesterday, okay? But if we lose that debate, fine, let's step down the drop in incentives. You never do an abrupt change to a program like this. It is the worst thing. It's the most irresponsible public policy decision. 
So we should have a more gradual decline and we should be heavily incentivizing batteries. California has a program called SGIP. If anybody's familiar with it, it's called the Self-Generation Incentive Program. It is predominantly for only low income, which is terrific. We should be heavily subsidizing low income, but you can't grow a market and leave the rest of the, the you know, citizens and the businesses and everybody else behind. It's just not going to work. So we need to heavily incentivize batteries. We need to remove this draconian change in net metering and give it a step-down approach. And we need to go beyond that. I mean, California should have dynamic rate structures. We should charge way less in the winter, way less in the winter, and way more in the summer and give consumers the tools that they need to manage that. Ironically, the Public Utilities Commission just basically gut and amended a proceeding that would have initiated that conversation, and they replaced it with a blunt tool called a fixed charge. And we've got PG&E now proposing $55 a month fixed charge on all residential customers. Every single month, it will disincentivize efficiency in conservation and solar energy, and it is the polar opposite of what we should be doing to drive innovation and clean energy and conservation. Let me ask you, just by way of playing devil's advocate, if I may. <laughs> Bring, um, it on. Bring it on. <laughs> uh, rooftop solar costs more per generated watt than utility scale solar. Um, if we were to take that, that fact to the conclusion that we should uh, uh, choose to set, set up a set of policies that uh, encourage the more rapid kind of growth of utility scale solar batteries and the like. Uh, I don't know what other policies would need to go along with it to make that growth possible. Um, I don't know, Senator Becker, if you have thoughts about the bills you've passed this year and, and how they can or should be enacted by the agencies responsible for enacting them to ensure that we can actually accommodate the scale of central renewable generation that we need. Um, and if you see more broadly, a, a, a better way for the state to kind of hold uh, simultaneously the idea that central generation is critical at, and distributed generation is as well. Yeah, I think, listen, I, I agree with everything. I think everything that Bernard said, I mean, I, um, the one of the central mantras of our team is build clean faster. That's kind of the general rubric of a lot of our um, legislation. And, um, and, and it's also, you know, because with all of the above, right? We need more utility scale. That's where building a transmission. Again, the utility scale isn't valuable unless we actually build the transmission to make the transmission easier. Um, but we need more distributed as well. And to me, those ideas are not in conflict, right? We absolutely need both. The reason that we did um, that we did central procurement this year, and this was a six-year effort to get central procurement done, is primarily for something like offshore wind, right? Something that is a massive undertaking. Um, it's valuable. It's actually going to save ratepayers more in the long run because it's kind of perfectly inversely correlated with our onshore wind and with solar, right? So it's really aimed squarely at that 5 to 9 p.m., uh, time frame, and again, a lot of our legislation has been focused on 24/7 uh, clean energy as well, um, because certainly still using natural gas during the day, but we're using a ton of it in that 5 to 9 p.m. Uh, time slot, especially uh, in the winter time now when people are coming home, plugging in their cars and such. And so, from our standpoint, is we really should be doing both. So I think it's a big mistake to disincentivize uh, rooftop solar at this time and believe that we can uh, both do that and. Um, and do things like central procurement, make sure we actually build offshore wind, which is, as you know, it's going to take seven to 10 years anyway. Can I just respond once, one little quick thing to the devil's yeah. advocate argument? Um, when people use that argument that utility scale is cheaper than distributed, they are only talking about the electron at the end of the property line of a utility scale project. And I, I'm loath to get into this, you know, celebrity battle between solar electrons because I agree 100%. We need all of the above. We need 180 gigawatts of solar as soon and renewables as soon as we can build it. Majority of that is going to be solar, right? So we should not be pitting one against the other, but facts matter. 
and the price of solar is at the property line, the expense to ratepayers of delivering those electrons into our cities, piping it into our homes and our businesses, is the largest expense um, right now on a utility bill. That does not get factored in when people talk about this, you know, oh, well, distributed is expensive. It is built into the environment. It is the cheapest, most efficient way for us to generate electricity. And nobody that is engaged in that slash and burn of the California's rooftop solar market is being intellectually honest about the value of distributed generation. That's saying nothing about line losses, local uh, economic development, putting money back in the pockets of real consumers. Our largest growth in our market prior to this NEM3 decision was in working class communities in California. We are putting money back in the pockets of California families when we equip them with solar panels. And it is just a falsehood. So I just have to say that. That said, we need all of the above. Offshore wind is tremendous if we can do it. It's gonna be 10 gigawatts at best of that 180 gigawatt, okay? We can't get from here to there without utilizing rooftop solar. We just can't. Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live, interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CCO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Julia Piper. I'm Brandon Hurlbut. And I'm Emily Dominich. A little over a year ago, political climate took a break so we could focus on the groundwork of implementing America's biggest ever climate bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited to say political climate is back. And I'll be joined by my two co-hosts to riff on the top political stories and insider scoops from state houses to the halls of Congress to regulatory agencies and even international climate talks. We'll explain how those developments are driving industry decisions today. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations. And to learn about how energy and climate policy is shaped within both political parties from the people who have actually helped shape it. So join me, Brandon and Emily, every other week, starting in April, for fresh episodes of Political Climate. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. You mentioned that there's a lot that didn't get put into the calculation of the value of rooftop solar in the NEM proceeding. I think um, among those values was the potential value of resiliency, the potential value of, of line losses. I, I don't know if we had the kind of social, um, local economic and economic development and economic kind of uplift effects calculated in that as well. I don't know if they... No, they didn't. ...belong in a CPUC proceeding, but certainly, Arthur, I would imagine they are part of the calculus that grid alternatives and the people it serves are, are working on. And I don't know if you have any thoughts about how do we understand and, and enumerate or qualify the value that a growing rooftop solar or distributed solar industry and a growing workforce and a growing roster of economic development mean for communities? Where and in what ways is California serving those needs? In what ways is it falling short? Well, I'll start by just saying that um, we can't do it like we have done it. So um, if you go by how it's been with a fossil fuel economy, there have been what I'll call sacrifice zones, right? Mm -hmm. Where the, um, the folks who have been most impacted are paying the most, right? And, and I mentioned the city of Richmond, right? That's a really great example. It's a local one. Um, for those of you who know, it's had a history of environmental impact. It started as a shipyard in World War II, actually, I think, made, made the most ships in of any location in the country. And now it's the site of a almost 3,000-acre Chevron refinery, right? That's, and uh, the, the neighborhood that I mentioned is literally kind of cordoned off, right? There's a freeway that's cut off from the shoreline. It's, it's like, it's, <laughs> it just fits all the stereotypes, right? So you start with that. Um, and they can't be left behind. Like, it just makes no sense. So I agree with what Bernard is saying. I think that, um, first of all, it's, it's the quicker way to go, okay? 
um, and then the, the 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 impacts economically you cannot calculate, right? The money that people save, I and mean, these are folks who are trying to make ends meet. Some of them um, have health issues, then they can't afford the electricity and the equipment. So there's a lot of stuff there that is kind of incalculable. One of the things, in, this, in addition to installing um, solar, we also have a workforce development program. So we literally provide training for the communities so that they can get into this whole clean energy revolution. And, um, you know, and there's folks who, in some cases, are, you know, coming back from re-entry populations. So there's a little bit of a knock of that some of the jobs are lower paying, but it's a start. And from there, they can go into unions, they can become electricians. So it really is, like, there are very few places where you can go and get the experience you need to then get the job, right? So we kind of started off with this barnstorming model where uh, folks could literally come and volunteer get the experience, and then get a job. And it's evolved into a workforce development program. And it's changed a little bit because of COVID. Um, we're kind of still ramping back up. But we're just trying to provide opportunities, right? We're trying to provide, uh, provide savings and access. And frankly, the, one of the biggest things is just the information. Like, some folks don't even know what's possible, right? Um, and they get um, approached by all kind of, um, you know, with all kind of offers. I was sharing with Bernadette. It's amazing how, so for the folks that we serve that meet the qualifications um, through a program called DAXASH, which is a state incentive program, they have to live in a particular geographic area and make a particular income and own the home, which in the Bay Area is like finding a needle in the haystack. Right. Right. Um, but we have an amazing outreach team. They find them. But then when we find them and we tell them what we're offering at no cost to them, there's, they're like, go away, you're kidding, you're lying, right? So um, it's amazing how challenging it is to give away. So it's like information. And um, again, we're talking about access, information. Those who are in the know and have better resources get better information and can, can do things that others can't. So we're, we're battling lots of layers to basically say, hey, this is possible. And then when we get happy clients, it's amazing. They're our best referrals because they're like literally pointing to the roof and say, no, it's true. <laughs> you can actually have this. So there's solar and then there's EV charging. So we're trying to just get everybody aware and then give them access. So it's, but it's a lot quicker to get these installations done. I mean, we're, we're, we're for all of it, but this is, we can, I'm a, we're builders, right? So we want to see things getting done um, and the faster, the better. And this has been working for us. Yeah. I, I am really curious about the, the kind of, what I guess I would describe is a chicken and egg problem with kind of expanding the capacity of the state to build at the rate that Bernadette, you've pointed out, needs to be done. And I guess it applies at both the kind of big utility scale and at the local distributed scale. And I guess the problem is, and you hear this a lot with people talking about trying to uh, get a heat pump or install an EV charger. Um, there aren't enough qualified, you know, uh, workers to do this work, and therefore um, you can't get it done in time. And, and perhaps because you can't get it done in time, a uh, robust demand is not developing, and therefore the contractors and the uh, you know the electricians don't see the need to kind of you know staff up and, and invest in expanding their workforce. I I don't know if I'm accurately describing this dynamic, but. I'm really wondering if it is true, and if so, how do we break out of it? How do we, what do we do with that situation? Yeah, well, listen, there's been elements of truth to this. I mean, any, any growing market, you're gonna have uh, tensions, uh, frictions at the edges, and, um, and we've had some of that. But again, that's why this bill I passed this year, 410, we actually worked with the electrical workers, and because they said, um, hey, okay, we want to get more journey, we're going to get more people into the process, but we need to know that the work's going to be there. So we said, okay, we got to do the workforce part of it. We have to do, again, the accountability for the utilities. At the end of the day, we have to hold them accountable for hitting timelines. But, and then third is, okay, let's some, do some targeted investments. Let's do this interim rate, make, rate making focused specifically on this issue. So that's what we had to do. And I think that's why, and I actually underestimated it. I was like, I just did it because we had a big fucking problem here in my area. But now I've, I've been on no, numerous Zooms with um, the charging associations, charging you know various conferences already just in the last couple of weeks. And they want to take this national. I think it's for that reason, because you have to, you have to bring all those pieces together. Um, I just want to say one thing on, to, on the, uh, you know, 
issue of, listen, as I said, there's always gonna be friction at the edges here, but what, um, you know, this should be, when I look around and see people I've known who've been in this industry for already now decades, right? Like this should be our golden age, right? Like we are winning, we have won. I mean, we won the climate argument, we won the economic argument, and now we see the forces of um, whatever uh, now trying to take us backward. And you see the Republicans and Trump talking about, you know, they're going out after EVs and they're trying to belittle EVs and they're trying to go against uh, ESG and they're like in the boardrooms. I mean, it's like, it's really crazy stuff. They're trying to like, they know they've lost uh, the economic argument. They know they've lost the climate argument. So now they're going, it's just fear and disinformation and trying to stall the progress. And you know, and that has, you know, that affects us here in California in various ways too. So like this should be our golden age. We need to make sure that no one slows this progress because if anything, as we know, we need to speed it up much, much more quickly. Thanks. Um, Bernadette or Arthur, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about how we spur a workforce kind of revolution mm. here. Do you want to go? Uh, sure. I mean, the quick answer is we've got no choice. <laughs> right, we're running out of time. So, you know, chicken or the eggs, like, figure it out. I feel like we've got goals to meet, and what do we need to do to meet that? Um, so, you know, we do workforce development. We're trying to scale our programs. So we kind of started as a, like I said, as a volunteer kind of organization, and now we're doing workforce development. We've got a program called IBT 200, which is Installation Basics 200. And it's a five-week course where folks come in and they get a, they do some classroom work and some lab work, and then they're out in the field. Oops. So it's really meant to be practical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've got regions that are churning out cohorts of folks to do that. Now we're trying to take that model and do a, a, a like a train the trainer model. So it's like, you know, um, yeah, just like, what's it gonna take? So I, you know, my before, this is my first nonprofit that I'm working for actually. Um, and it's been quite a learning curve in a lot of different ways. Um, but one thing that resonates with me, and I'm actually surprised at how entrepreneurial we are as a nonprofit. We do lots of different things. I was, I, I, I joke with people that I thought I worked hard as an entrepreneur. This is a whole nother level. Um, and uh, it's literally like running six companies in one with all the various lines of work that we do. Um, and each one has a particular client base and funding. It's, 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 it's really, thank goodness I love a challenge. But um, we are, uh, so you, not everything's gonna work. If you try 10 things, three of them are gonna work. How quickly can you get to those three? That means you gotta just kind of iterate and try and try and try until you kind of get to what works. So, you know, I, 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 I hate to steal the logo, but it's like, just do it, right? Like, just let's, 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 <laughs> so to your point, we just gotta, we just gotta, you know, we're trying to some different programs and we're talking to as many employers, what are the needs? Um, talking to the trainees, what are you trying to, trying to do? And then just, just iterate and, and do. There's a couple of different ways to answer the question. I would say, from my vantage point, that uh, the speed of the uptick of adoption of electrification technologies is not right now being slowed down by workforce constraints, but it will be in time to get to where we need. So we need to be able to, again, like walk and chew gum, we need to be able to drive the demand and drive the growth of the markets, and at the same time, remove barriers to entry in the workforce. California, I know I'm just kind of full of critiques right now, but it does feel like it's one after another. There's a, this is a really wonky thing, but there's a proposal right now pending before a licensing board called the California Contractor Licensing Board that would require um, uh, solar and storage uh, distributed to be only installed by electricians. Electrician, to become electrician requires five years of training that is um, a barrier for a lot of people. And it is an important thing. Our electricians are priceless. They're like the PhDs of the building trades and we need every single one of them. But I guarantee you, we need every single one of them working with Senator Becker's interconnection work. We need them doing you know, EV charging. We need them doing all of the wiring of a home. And we really should not be pulling up the ladder for those who are trying to get in right now to the clean energy workforce by creating this incredibly high barrier. And at the same time, destroying solar companies that have built their whole life around their license, which is to specialize in solar and storage. So 
just one example of where California is just kind of heading in the wrong direction if we care about workforce development and, and, and moving more and more people away from the fossil fuel industry toward clean energy. We should not be basically throwing up all of these, these roadblocks. Yeah, on the, um, on the equity side, you know, equity has many forms. So we talked about it. And it also means the workforce, right? And making sure we're diversifying the workforce. We hold the trades accountable for diversifying the trades, but we also create opportunities for other people who traditionally weren't in those trades to uh, get into this work. And, um, and that's really important. And, and I just want to say like the equity piece is not just, um, uh, not just because it's morally the right thing to do, but from a policy standpoint in California, it's imperative because again, I know, you know, some people look at price, oh, it's easy in California. It's not right. Because we are, as you in this room know, you know, we're the sixth or whatever largest oil producing state in the country. So the number one contributor to the state legislature is the Western States Petroleum Initiative, right, by far. And so it is difficult. And, you know, I have colleagues who say, hey, I represent, you know, mostly Latino workers making $48,000 a year and they don't think any of this stuff is for them. So unless they actually believe it's for them, this it's gonna make their lives better at the end of the day, um, their, you know, their representatives are, so aren't gonna vote for this stuff too. So the equity piece is not only morally the right thing to do, but politically, if we're not bringing everything along, everyone along, if we're not making lives better across the state, then we are gonna lose. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. I, I wanted to step to interconnection for a second because I, I, I guess I should double check on the extent to which interconnection delays, interconnection challenges, and the underlying kind of grid build out that I, I maybe a part of the challenge with getting interconnections done in a timely fashion might be a real gating issue for growing the workforce as well as you know getting all this stuff built that we need and interconnected that we need. And I guess, Senator Becker, I'm wondering when uh, you describe holding the utilities accountable, what does that look like? And, and how do you uh, do that uh, through the interim rate case, which I, sounds like is a, is a way to allow them to add a couple cents per month to our utility bills to get the money to go do the work that your bill calls on them to do. Right, but your, your question was about the, first part was about the, how does the workforce piece fit into that? Yeah, or, or uh, yeah, actually time, utility. So that's why it's the whole package, because we tried this the first year, and Ken's my, my kind of climate guru here. We tried this first year, we're like, just timelines and penalties. And, you know, we just got crushed you know, politically in every way. Sure. And it also was unrealistic, right? Um, and so we came back, we said, okay, we need timelines and penalties uh, for the utilities. But again, we have to make sure the workforce is part of it. And for the workforce to be there, they need to know the work's going to be there. So that's why we kind of got integrated to this whole picture. We said, we have to have all those three things come together. Um, and if we know that the work's going to be there, we're going to staff up the workforce, we have agreed, and then we have timelines and penalties for the utilities. So that's what the bill is, 410, is, is really that, bringing those three things together. Mm -hmm. I, I, I guess I'm wondering too, how, in, in general, what you guys think uh, of the kind of twin challenge of giving the utilities what they need to build the grid and interconnect stuff faster, while also holding them accountable for spending the money that we allow them to collect in a wise fashion. It's tricky because the rates are going up and I know that the rates aren't going up for the reasons that we're talking about here today, but they uh, are going up. And, and, and how, do you, how do you see the best way for state policy to hold utilities to account and yet give them the tools they need to do what needs to be done? Can I, can I just, I'll just start out with that because that's kind of our, uh, you know, this is what we've been working on for the last few years. I mean, the, uh, as we know, like we're, we're, our rates are really disconnected with actually moving energy around. The problem is we stuff lots of things into rates, right? We stuff in all the wildfire costs into rates. The CARE program, which is a $5 billion program, we put that into rates. So we put everything into rates. So we tried last year to create this climate and equity trust and say, hey, let's pull those. Let's take the CARE program. Let's take those wildfire costs. Let's take them out of rates and let's create a climate and equity trust. And we had the surplus and we couldn't get it done politically. But we need to do something like that 
say, hey, these are our costs we want to take as, as a state as a whole. Great. Let's take those out of rates. Let's put those into the general fund and let's fund, focus the rates on things around uh, energy. So I think longer term, we have to do something like that because the high rates disincentivize the switch to electrification, which is what we all want, is what we need for our energy policy. So that's kind of what the, the big picture and what we're looking at. And then in the meantime, it's how do we hold utilities accountable, both in general, how do we do a better job in the general rate case, which for pg will come up in, in 27. So we need general rate case reform. And then in the case, if we do ever do targeted investments in this case, you put lots of guardrails and you can look at what we did, um, lots of guardrails around it and, and um, uh, and lots of accountability. So it's very focused on, say, for example, you know, clearing this massive backlog and getting interconnection put up. So there's, you know, short-term stuff and then there's me medium-term stuff and then there's long-term stuff when it comes to rates in my mind. We put forward a bill last year in addition to what Senator Becker did. Uh, it was um, authored by Senator Becker's uh, colleague in the South Bay, Mark Berman. And it was, I believe it's AB 643, but it would basically uh, um, require that the Public Utilities Commission um, penalize uh, with financial penalties the utilities for not meeting their interconnection Rule 21 timelines. And the money would come from shareholders, not from ratepayers. We think that's a, actually a really ad important additional tool to the to the work Senator Becker hopefully will put in place with the governor's signature. Um, but we think there needs to be actually a little bit of a, um, a financial penalty for the utilities to just continue to blow past uh, the appropriate timelines. Great that they have will have the staff to do the work. Let's make sure that they do it by creating a little bit of a stick. Um, and we think that bill has a lot of merit. It was turned into a two-year bill, which if you're familiar with Sacramento lexicon, that means it was met with some stiff opposition and held in the mysterious appropriations committee. Um, but we are really optimistic with growing awareness of interconnection problems, which is grow it's growing on the distribution side as well as the you know utility sales side that you hear a lot about, that we will be able to move that forward because I think it makes a lot of common sense. Yeah. I guess, Arthur, I, I don't know if you guys have any experience with this. Um, you know, I, I don't know if the kind of work that you guys are, are working on is encountering challenging interconnection, you know, uh, issues and uh, how, you know, the communities that you serve are kind of dealing with them. Um, not to the extent, not, you know, nothing that's stopping us, right, mm -hmm. from, from continuing our work. I mean, you know, months at a time. So... We, First of all, we've got a different client base. They're a little more patient <laughs> than, than, than others because um, they're getting it at no cost. So there's a little bit of like, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Um, some, of our, some of our folks, uh, it takes, with all the bureaucracy of the application process that we go through, can take up to nine months or a year to get, their, uh, to get the installation done and the interconnection. So we kind of, we factor that in and just, um, you know, manage expectations that way. Hmm. So we kind of built it into the process. Yeah. Yeah. I was also struck by the point you made about the philosophy of just get it done, just do it. Um, I do wonder how you apply that to reforming and kind of renovating how utilities go about doing what they do. I don't know how you just get it done when anything you want to get done must go through a couple years of kind of quasi-judicial quasi review at the CPUC and uh, be applied to a kind of really, really strenuous test of how it might possibly backfire for every single kind of class of rate payer and every single, you know, circumstance one can imagine. And I don't know if utilities are necessarily the entities that should be looked to to be responsible for innovation out there, but I might imagine that there are ways to incentivize California's utilities to innovate freely without running the risk of uh, perhaps burdening their ratepayers with uh, escalating costs due to the you know the money they spend trying to do that. But I don't know if there are any good examples of where we're seeing innovation being made possible through policy or through the actions of the utilities themselves, or or whether there are alternatively other ways that you think util uh, others outside the utilities could innovate if only, I'm yeah. not sure. Well, I'll just say, you know, we're trying to remake our energy system while we have these monopoly uh, legacy providers, right? And it's difficult. It's for all the reasons you just said, it's difficult. And, um, 
you know, we know, for example, I know personally, you know, utilities don't tend to run very good consumer-facing marketing programs. So I was a seed investor in Opower back in my uh, clean energy investing days. And Opower was an, a radical idea. It was basically saying, hey, great, let's just turn the utility bill into a marketing document for energy efficiency. And, um, and the utilities, I think, kind of quickly realized, yeah, we're not really good at that. So they basically turned it over to Opower to, and prove that they could just use behavioral psychology to reduce energy bills, um, you know, two to 5%, which was significant. And I think when you talk about demand flexibility, for example, is another area where we need to make sure we're enabling third-party aggregators. And so I've spent a lot of time uh, grilling the regulators on this topic because I still feel like we're not doing enough to open up data sharing for the utilities to third-party aggregators. And we have those folks who have, with their own money and you know, venture money bought, say, million uh, Nest thermostats, and then we, you know, allow utilities to basically compete against them using ratepayer dollars. That makes no sense to me, right? So I think that's another area um, where um, we need to do better. You know, we're spending a billion dollars. We spent a billion dollars on dirty legacy, you know, once through cooling, heavily polluting uh, plants just because we might need them for like 15 hours a year. Um, and you think about the storage we could have built with that, the, the solar we could have built with that, and you think about what we can do with better demand flexibility. I was on a panel with Jigger uh, Shaw this morning talking, he's very big on virtual power plants, and that's something that can be incented through the IRA. Maybe some of you are working on that. We have some big, um, some, some, some big projects here in California. So again, I think that's another area, uh, an example of where we really have to let um, the innovators innovate and and not let utilities be a bottleneck to innovation. Yeah, I was going to actually mention the virtual power plants and bring up um, the uh, community choice aggregates, right? Like, you know, again, I tend to be glass half full, but um, I'm amazed they exist, right? <laughs> it took so, a long time. Yeah, but they 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 they're, they're out there, and um, actually. Um, MC is doing a virtual power plant in Richmond. So I bring up Richmond a lot. We, are, we work other places, but they, they do so many great things there that I, that I have to use them as a model. But um, it's an exciting pilot, right? Um, that's tapping into um, all the solar that we've installed along with uh, storage and, um, you know, the smart meters and uh, heat power pumps. And, um, and if that goes well, it's still at the early stages, but I think those are the kind of projects that just force... I'd like to think that those kind of projects will just pull the utilities along, right? Like they can't ignore <laughs> the what's what's going on anymore, and they have to respond. And I think as because um, the virtual power plant is actually going to be re uh, rewarding the uh, participants, right? So they're going to get discounts off their bill for that. So that kind of word gets around, right? And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, I, I want that too. And then you know um, the dots get connected, and I think things will will move. So that's my, I guess, hope. I want to go back to that fact I, I shared earlier that the largest battery in the world is in California hanging on garage walls. It's a gigawatt worth of energy storage capacity in a distributed fashion. To put that in context, when California had blackouts a couple summer, a couple Augusts ago, the delta in our needs was around 250 megawatts. There's one power plant that went didn't go online when it was supposed to. So if you put that in the context, even a battery that is only supposed to run for a couple of hours, we could have filled the gap in theory, right? Those batteries weren't all... We, we haven't enabled the virtual power plant concept, but the point is we are every day, you know, we have this potential to build these alternative versions of power plants and fill the gaps in very short increments where California builds this gigantic grid to fill our needs for a couple hours out of the year. There's a better way to do it, right? And if we do it in a in, inverse the model so we do it primarily loading order first, efficiency and conservation, reduce what we need, I'm seeing a very disturbing pattern happening right now in California where we're starting to pit uh, electrification against efficiency. That is a really bad idea and we've got to fight against that. So we got to maintain that and then we should do distributed resources next and then utility scale to fill in the big gaps from there. If we do that and we enable the combination, the, con the, the, the um, networking of all of these miniature power plants, we can no problem meet our clean energy goals and keep the lights on. I don't mean to say no problem like it's going to be easy, 
but we can do it. We are an amazing state. And to, to just riff off what Senator was saying earlier, this should be our golden era. And it isn't right now. We, we're like running a marathon and we're at mile 12. And we just threw up like a bunch of barriers on our pathway and put a pebble in our shoe, you know? And it's just, we just got to clear that out and get ourselves back on path with good leadership. And, um, and we can get there. And the utilities... We just need a regulator that'll stand up to the monopoly. Whether you're Republican or Democrat, this is what government should do. This is like the highest form of government. If we're going to give a sanctioned market to a utility, we have to regulate them well. So that's the most innovation I think we need is a stronger Public Utilities Commission to rein in the utilities and get them on path, the right track. And they'll do fine just with, you know, poles and wires. And we can let the innovation happen around them. Thanks, y'all. We have just a few minutes left, but I should probably ask, what have I not asked y'all so far that you wanted to talk about here? Am I missing anything important? And, and are there any kind of last and final points you'd like to make or any emphasis you'd like to put on any particular uh, problem that you're working on? So, at the risk of triggering the conversation <laughs> here. Um, I may cut you off, but... <laughs> that's fine. So, we've talked a lot about it. So, I'm excited about community solar. Right. Yeah. And I think that um, uh, in contrast, well, I'll just mention Contra Costa County in particular because we have, I guess, three refineries out of the nine in the, in the state yeah. and it's had a lot of impact. And um, there's some that are going to be supposedly closing down, withdrawing. Like there's an opportunity to repurpose that property um, given how hard it is to find land in the Bay Area. To, and there's a whole concept of brownfields to brightfields, right? And it's going to take a lot of connecting dots from the various organizations between the community organizations and, and the refineries. And uh, like, there's a lot of, but um, that's something that um, is, worth, is worth doing. And um, so that, uh, that we can continue to be the, the power hub, but in a different way. Um, so that's something that I, yeah. You're going to trigger a fist pump right here. That is okay. beautiful. I love that vision. That is awesome vision. That is community solar. We are building energy in our communities and even better repurposing what has been um, a burden on those communities, even if it's provided resources, right? It's been a burden, and that's gorgeous. I would say the one thing we haven't talked about, it's the good old net metering topic, but... Um, there's a policy decision pending right now at the Public Utilities Commission with a vote expected Thursday, October 12th, uh, that will determine the fate of what's called multimeter properties. So apartment buildings, schools, farms, uh, strip mall type developments, anything with multiple meters, either multiple connection points to the grid or multiple tenants in on one property. Um, the Public Utilities Commission wants to apply the draconian changes to net metering and then some. They want to uh, basically declare every electron that solar system generates on that apartment building and export and then force people to buy it back from PG&E at retail rates. So it's just a ridiculous proposal. We're fighting really hard. Oakland Unified just did a press conference um, yesterday to stand up and say, hey, this is going to really squash all of the green investment dollars we've collected from the community and we want uh, to do um, to help green up Oakland. Um, and we're hoping that gives us a big shot in the arm. Um, but if you want to tune in to the Public Utilities Commission vote on October 12th, they start at 11 a.m. And you can be virtual and you can make a public comment and help us make sure that the vote goes the right way. Also, a couple of things. One, just a, a shout out to the CCAs who are showing we can innovate and SMUD with their aggressive targets showing what is uh, possible. Um, I'll say, you know, big picture, we need a movement that builds. So our friends in the environmental community, we need to kind of get that message out. We need to protect our environment here in California, but we also make, need to make sure that we um, get stuff done and we have do this build out. Uh, we didn't talk about the IRA and implications and you know, but that is really going to make everything cheaper. Um, but we need to make sure that California is in a good position for that. Um, I'll just say that, you know, if you're unhappy with, if you're happy, great. Um, then you have to be wary for the reason I'll mention. If you're unhappy, then you got to get organized because there's a lot of seats open in the legislature. We're losing Nancy Skinner right here. Losing Nancy Skinner, that's like, like that's losing Babe Ruth, Jackie Robinson. I mean, that's like, you lose Nancy Skinner. 
that's a big effing deal. And you know, you and you all are going to figure out, um, you know, who replaces her. Losing there's an open state senate seat. Steve Glazer said he's not going to run again. Um, that means there's lots of there's going to be assembly seats just in this area alone, let alone in the state. There's just a massive uh, year, and there's one this. Uh, time in 24, and then we're not going to have that. People are going to be pretty locked in for a while. So I will tell you from being legislature, there's not enough by far. The clean energy community does not show up uh, in, a, in, 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 a, in a big enough way in elections or in policy in Sacramento. And, um, and, that's, and that's a big problem and we need to fix it. Yeah. <laughs> Again, that was uh, Jeff St. John with his panelists at the Canary Live Bay Area event that happened in Berkeley. Uh, we're going to have another overview of the state of climate tech investing as well, so stay tuned for that. And you can find the uh, the video, the archive video on YouTube. We'll provide a link to that so you can watch it. And uh, don't forget to check out Transition AI New York, our conference in Manhattan on AI and energy coming up on October 19th. Uh, the Carbon Copy is produced by me and Dalvin Abawaje. It is a co-production of Canary Media and Postscript Media, soon to be Latitude Media. And we are also supported by Prelude Ventures, which supports entrepreneurs and companies across a range of sectors, uh, energy, materials, uh, transportation, logistics, manufacturing. And so thanks to them for being a supporter. And thanks to you for listening. If you want to support this show, give us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts and share a link with your colleagues. We'll catch you next week. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. <laughs>